Malcolm Holmline, as I said, is in Spain. No joke. The Conference of Presidents met with King Juan Carlos I of Spain, among many things that they've done while in Spain during the last couple of days. And Malcolm will explain that and many, many more things, I'm sure, from Europe coming up. Malcolm Honline is the Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations and joins us for the weekly update here on a Friday morning. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you. It's always good to be with you and wherever it is, Buenos Dias and uh, all the other uh, greetings I could give you from this uh, wonderful place where we are called Toledo, which has an amazing Jewish history, both good and bad. And it's uh, it's to experience what happened 500 years ago. Uh, it never felt more than in Toledo with its glorious Jewish history and um, so many famous people and their statues all over in the names of uh, famous Jews who lived here. One of the benefits of, uh, of your extensive travel schedules, we get to ask you questions about different places that you visit, especially as they relate to Israel and the Jewish world. Uh, first of all, the um, the and we know that the EU we we look at it at, we look at it collectively, and we talk about the EU, its relationship with Israel, its demands of Israel, etc. Where is Spain on that scale? How much pressure do they think the leaders of Spain should be put on Israel? What is their role when it comes to EU leadership and the relationship with the Middle East? Well, it's in, as in most countries, it's shifting. The, the it depends on the government and its attitudes. This government has to, happens to be more sympathetic. We spent an hour and a half yesterday with the president of the government, who is the equivalent of the prime minister, right after we met with the king. And in both instances, we spoke to them about their role in the EU, as we did with other officials with whom we've been meeting, Minister of Justice, the Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs, etc. And I must say that I think that they are very receptive they get it. They see Israel as an important ally. The Minister of Interior was there last week. There's talk of high-level exchanges and meetings. In fact, Netanyahu uh, was scheduled to come uh, during this period, maybe in the spring. Uh, and the emphasis that we've been placing on a Mediterranean uh, alliance, meaning having Spain and Israel as anchors with countries like Greece and Morocco and Italy, and others to move it out of the Middle East, which is so volatile, into the Mediterranean, which has problems, but is a much more stable region. And they are very open to it. They they talk. They do about a billion dollars in trade. They absolutely reject the boycott and said that they would. They were upset with Ashton's remarks and other comments and the direction of the EU and and said that they would not support it. But frankly. Um, as with most other countries, they follow the lead of France, Germany, and Britain right. when it comes to EU voting. And the EU tends to vote as a bloc even in the UN, although not in every instance. There, there are some in the Knesset. You mentioned the speech. There are some in the And you mentioned the visit, rather. There are some in the Knesset who walked out during Martin Schultz's speech this week. Well, that's a very important thing. I, I, I just want to say one other thing sure. about Spain that's very important. First of all, there are about 5,000 Jews. Some say 10,000, but... And you know that they that most came in the in the last decades, and uh, there is life being revived. We went to visit a Jewish day school with uh, 250 Jewish children. I mean, it's quite remarkable. Speaking Hebrew, Spanish, many of them English, getting a great education. And if I would say the tuition, I think everybody in your audience would be making aliyah to 
to uh, Spain <laughs> in order to educate their children at a fraction of the cost, and the uh, that the, the Spanish government just in the last days uh, announced the legislation which they've been working on for some time, which will grant citizenship, Spanish citizenship, to Jews of Sephardic origin who can prove that they had Sephardic ancestry. There is a great emphasis here about Sephardic culture, the Sephardic influence in art, science, philosophy, and it's it's very serious. And many people now are identifying, um, you know, roots in the Jewish community that they had Jewish ancestry. We used to call them Moranos. It's not a appropriate term anymore. They call them conversos and Chuetos, uh, who, who represent in Portugal and here whole communities that are looking back at their history and reviving Jewish connections. So the government has undertaken and is now developing, they're going to have to have final passage, when, and then I can't imagine how they'll implement it and determine who is a Jew. And in Israel, they can't determine it, right. and we have problems everywhere. But it's a very significant gesture because, to me, it, it shows that they're confronting the past. That too often, you know, they talked about the, the tragic mistake. It wasn't a mistake. It was a deliberate policy of expulsion, forced conversion, and execution. And that uh, many Jews paid with their lives. When Columbus left the port, they say it was he had a delay for a day because it was so chock full of ships taking Jews away. And that these Jews then spread around the world. And many of them maintain a very close tie to their Spartac origins. In fact, many still have keys from their homes that they left in different uh, cities like, like Toledo, which was called the Jerusalem of, of Spain. And when you drive up, you see the image. It, it looks like it. And we visited some of the former shuls of this uh, synagogues in, in this area. So the government, I think, is taking an important step, and the king specifically referenced it. And then in, in discussion, uh, elaborated more, he said, look, you know, we have common roots, and if we can build on them for a better future, so that they, they are talking out more openly and honestly about what happened. They, they say it was a tragic mis- uh, error for them. It was uh, inexcusable. They don't try to cover it up and, anymore, as they have in the past. And so it's a very significant gesture, I think. I don't think the practical implications will be known for a long time, if any. It's their way of saying you are welcome here, as opposed to what some of our predecessors said or implemented. You are, in fact, welcome here. It's a, it's a different Spain, let's put it that it's way. Actually, it's exactly the summary of what the Minister of Justice said to us uh, when we talked about it, many things. But he said that when he was young, if they called you a Jew, it was an insult. Right. He said today it's the reverse. And and you see it manifest in many ways. And the and the lineup, if I had time to go through all the people from the mayor of Toledo and the and of Madrid to the to the ministers to the officials to the, the kind of way that they have uh, treated us here in these couple of days, it's really quite remarkable. And you'll hear from I'm sure from many of the participants uh, uh, later on. The, what happened with Schultz? Yeah, but, but uh, before Schultz, I just want yeah. to say that it's it's interesting. I would think I would have thought that the Jewish population was even larger in Spain. I mean, not to put a damper on what you're saying, it's great to hear that there's such a, a presence there and that the, the, the day school and everything else is uh, you know, so influential in helping the Jewish community grow. But I would have thought it's even larger. And one other thing before we talk about Schultz, 
Uh, and, I'm, and obviously this doesn't apply directly to Spain, but the moment we heard you were in Europe, I felt I'd add this uh, to our topics. You know, we know now, in addition to Poland and Holland and Switzerland, now Denmark is set for a shchita ban, a ritual slaughter ban. And I learned this morning that there's no such thing as ritual slaughter in Denmark to begin with. They import all their kosher meat, so it's more of a symbolic thing. But does this, I don't know, does this give us, uh, you know, something else to worry about in terms of symbolism, even if it's not a practical ban that, that you know, symbolically other European countries are joining in with the previous ones for a ritual slaughter ban? It's of uh, great concern, it, and as you said, it's being manifest in other countries. And this is traditionally, historically, the way to strike at Jews is to attack Brit Milah, circumcision, and Shechita, uh, ritual slaughter. And they do it under the guise of humane slaughter or right. concern for the animals. You know, the Nazis were concerned about animals, but as they were massacring human beings. Right. And the, you know, this is a, a, a not un, uh, unprecedented and not uncommon, and it is a, a vicious anti-Semitic campaign. We know that humane slaughter laws have been, uh, humane slaughter practices um, in terms of countries are, are proven scientifically in other ways and have been repeatedly so. So this is, it is of concern, and especially a country like Denmark, which, you know, always praised itself for the saving of Jews, and as one official in Denmark told me a number of years ago, it's time for the Jews to stop saying thank you to Denmark. Oh, boy. Because the Jew, Denmark has to thank the Jews, because we saved a few thousand Jews. We did not go into the docket in the Nuremberg trials, because we collaborated with the Nazis. We provided them with the weapons. We provided them with ammunition and metal, food for the troops. And they did turn over thousands of Jews who were not Danish citizens. They saved those who were Danish citizens, and I, we credit them for that. But, uh, you know, the stories like the king going out with a yellow star on was not true. It never happened. It was a mythology that was created. And uh, so Denmark and, and the other Scandinavian countries where we see anti-Semitism so rampant, Sweden, who hold themselves up as a paragon of human rights and, and uh, justice, are, are of the lowest stature possible. And the spreading messages, the fact that you have these extremist parties, and we discussed this extensively right. here, as I did two weeks ago with the leaders of Greece, right. which is confronting Golden Dawn in effective ways. Unfortunately, in other countries, they're not. But when you have 17,000 people march in France saying Jews don't belong here, the message of Spain saying Jews do belong here, I think, is, again, more important. Oh, no question about it. Five minutes before the hour, Malcolm Honeline is live in Spain. That's the reason we're focusing on Europe at the beginning of this weekly update here at JM and the AM, and now uh, regarding the Martin Schultz speech uh, in the Knesset. Right. So for those who don't know uh, the illustrious Mr. Schultz, uh, he, he was, he's the president of the European Parliament, uh, which sounds very impressive, and it's not insignificant, but it's not as significant as the title might uh, apply, uh, imply. He came before the Knesset and in a speech got up and said, that the that Israelis were getting four times more water than Palestinians. Now the truth is that this is one of the old canards used against Israel, which under previous agreements uh, is due to to provide uh, 28.6 million cubic meters of water a year, I think, um, which is a lot of water. But in fact, it's providing 60 million cubic meters. It's more than 50% more than what they're required to do. In addition, the Israel Water Authority shows how the Palestinians have dug more than 250 pirate wells, pirate wells in the West Bank, and more than 3,000 in Gaza, which 
damages the underground water table, and about a third of their water is lost by stealing and by leaking pipes uh, in the West Bank. So this is a myth that, that Israel is somehow denying them. The fact is that Israelis get about 1.2 times as much water, fresh water available to them, which is very little uh, difference, in fact. But Schutz was told this when he visited the West Bank and the Palestinians uh. in Ramallah, and he just came and repeated it and acknowledged that he had not researched it, he had not done anything to, uh, to check out the veracity of these assertions. And that didn't stop him. So, as you know, some uh, Bennett and some members of his party and others walked out, others were critical, including the Prime Minister. But it is part of the knee-jerk reaction to, right. to accepting any charge against Israel, uh, readiness to repeat it, and to, to turn it into a fact by the repetition. So even the prime minister was not happy with it. Oh, no, he was very upset by it. Look, I don't know whether walking out was smart, and, and, and I think it would be better to take the opportunity to, to tell him the facts. Um, but but it, it, it represents to me the, uh, you know, the readiness today in this era of delegitimization right. to accept any charge against Israel. Uh, here's what he said. Yeah, the prime minister said he accused Schultz of selective listening and then said that Israelis consume 70 liters of water a day compared with 17 liters of Palestinians, right? Wow. Uh, that was selective listening on the part yeah. of the EU president. It's, it's a but, nice phrase, but uh, <laughs> right. it's a nice way down of, to the same thing, I Right, think. nice way of putting it. All right, um, you, you know, last week, I, I think I opened up last week with the BDS panic, and I asked you whether this is, you know, uh, worse than ever, that ho- the whole trend, the, the delegitimization and through boycott, etc. By the way, uh, sorry for the tangent here, but uh, you see what the Rolling Stones are going through ever since they announced they're heading to Israel. I mean, I, we've seen a lot of efforts to stop rock groups, but this one, this one seems to be over the top. They're really under a lot of pressure with this one. Unless well, it's just ho- a... hopefully they like uh, Scarlett Johansson right. and others will will uh, not succumb. To this intimidation and not and, and not violate uh, basic values, and uh, I hope that they will will, will uh, be able to stand up to it. Because the fact is that if you look at much of the BDS movement, the economic impact on Israel is not that great, right. even even in terms of SodaStream. But because they've been so focused on, um, uh, people don't know that they have factories around the country, at, around the world, around Israel, but around the world as well. Yeah, the symbolism and, is the key, right? And the, and the funny thing is that if you boycott SodaStream in Maladumim, you put 350 or, or 380 Israelis out of work. You put uh, almost 400 is, uh, Israeli Arabs out of work right. and almost 350 Palestinian Arabs out of work. Right. So who are you punishing in, in, with these ridiculous uh, attacks and, and uh, campaigns? So and, and yet, you know, at the same time, we see... The Palestinians say we're going to we, we don't accept any of the red lines. They draw the red line on a total withdrawal to 67. All the conditions for the peace process that they, you know, that they have set just in this last week, including, you know, that the the Kotel has to go back to the Palestinians, that the uh, right of return uh, and uh, and the would be based on Resolution 194, meaning that they should come to Israel, the the release of all prisoners, uh, unconditional 67 borders. I mean, everything that would undermine uh, the the talks, and yet there's very little criticism, very little said right. about uh, about what this this all means. And look, and the people like Arakat negotiators who are saying it.
Well, you know, Malcolm, you can't compromise with everybody. You know that. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial and around the world on the web, jmnam.org. Don't worry, folks. I will get uh, to the question that I started a couple of minutes ago. We got sidetracked on BDS. Uh, don't forget our JMNAM fundraising marathon begins on the 24th of February, a week from Monday. If you have received our pre-marathon brochure in the mail, please respond generously. If you have not, or even if you have, you can go to the web right now at jmnam.org. The top news story is about our fundraiser. And I checked it out with all authorities. You can support us earlier than February the 24th. So get to the link right now at the top of jmnam.org, at the top of the news section, I should say, of jmnam.org. And please give generously to keep us going as we celebrate our 30-plus anniversary. So the, the question, uh, as I was saying look, last week, was BDS. So this week seems anti-Semitism is a big topic in the news. I, I think the only uh, the only retirement that eclipsed the Abraham Foxman annou- announcement was Derek Jeter. Outside of, outside of that, many people in our community were focused on the fact that Abe Foxman will be leaving the ADL in 2015. We know the work that he's been doing. Uh, when it comes to anti-Semitism and alerting people to what's been going on around the world. But then we see this initiative as well. And by the way, he did make a statement this week. I, I, I don't remember what time frame he was using, but he said now in the U.S. it's worse. Than, I don't know if it was the U.S. or the world. I apologize. I don't have it in front of me. But he did use the expression worse than ever in terms of anti-Semitism. On top of that, we saw Bennett this week and the World Jury Joint Initiative. Apparently, the government of the state of Israel, we have discussed this before, is very concerned about what's going on in the diaspora and uh, and needs to start in it, and to start and continue initiatives that uh, talk about and uh, promote Jewish pride, Jewish heritage, and uh, connection with Israel. And this will hopefully help stem the tide of anti-Semitism as well. So now I ask you, Malcolm, are we in a new era of anti-Semitic uh, activities, anti-Semitic atmosphere that we should be uh, careful about? No, I think it's a continuum that goes back to Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, our forefathers, who were the prototypes for what we've experienced throughout the generations. Uh, I don't think he said this is the worst of times. Certainly you can't compare it to the 1930s. And whatever similarities uh, may exist, the, the key is what lessons we learned from that period and that we derive from history, uh, because each situation is different. And we have a Jewish state with a Jewish army that's able to do remarkable and amazing things to save endangered Jewish communities that we did not have. And frankly, the, for the first time, probably in 2,000 years, there's no Jewish community not free to leave the country in which it lives today. And uh, there may be individuals, but no community that is not free to leave where they live. These are, are remarkable things, and, and that Jewish communities can be saved and brought home to Israel and Many opt to go elsewhere, uh, regrettably, but the the situation, I think, in, in many respects, it, it is not so dire as this is a dangerous thing, because what we've learned also from history is that this is a cancer that keeps reemerging, and if you don't attack it aggressively, it keeps growing until you can't do anything about it. Right. And I think that that's where we are with this BDS campaign, because people tend to to dismiss it and as i said in a number of interviews this week this is the 21st century's anti-semitism which targets the collective jew because it's more politically correct than saying i hate jews you can say i hate israel and that none of us should be fooled about what this really means who the target is what the nature of this campaign 
societies aren't judged because they have haters. They're judged by how they deal with them. How do the, the, the law enforcement, how do the legal authorities, the governments deal with it? Do they confront it? Do they try to outlaw it? Do they, do they deny them the support and succor that they need in order to expand? And we're going to see much more of this. Economic conditions uh, exacerbated, political conditions, and the weakness of the systems it's going to be reflected in particular in Europe when they have the parliamentary elections, when these right-wing, extreme right-wing parties like Jobbik in Hungary and Gondon in Greece and Le Pen in, in France and others could make a very strong showing. And and it, it, it's anti-Semitism is only one aspect of yeah. what a lot of this is anti-immigrant uh, because of the Muslim population influx and growth in, in their countries. There are a lot of factors that uh, that come into it. You know, I can't find the exact quote I was referring to, and, and I'm sure I was not accurate in the way I I, I presented it. But it's interesting because I, I I see an article that he has online, and when you put and you just mentioned so much of it, the different political parties in different countries, and so many different things that are going on. I think we have to we have to um, uh, realize the fast moving media of the day, and just how quickly the world is going in general. That might be what's worse than ever, meaning all these mm-hmm. things that, that come together, it seems like uh, you know we're getting to a point where it's almost impossible to deflect everything quickly enough because there's just so much at, at one time in front of so many people. Absolutely right, and it's this, the, the, rapidity, the uh, rapidity with which stories are circulated, and once they're out, no matter what, it, there's no way to re- repudiate it. There's no way to correct it, even if it has no truth whatsoever. Especially young people today, they want everything in 140 characters. They have no time for history. They have no patience for facts. They don't want to delve into it. If Google doesn't tell them right away what it is, it, we, we are approaching the most complex of issues today. And because of globalization, they are com- the complexity is compounded. When you look at all the issues we face, whether it's Syria, whether it's uh, Iraq's collapse and Jordan and in, in trouble. This, uh, the Egyptian situation, the, certainly the Palestinians, Gaza in economic collapse and, and running out of water and all sorts of things. The Saudis talking about getting Pakistani weapons. Just in this one week, you talk about uh, Turkey's uh, internal issues and, and external uh, manifestations towards Israel. It is a very difficult time, and and the way you deal with this is not to look just at the headline or look at it superficially, because that is going to lead to, to failed policies by those in power or a failure on the part of the public to try and help create policy that, that works. By the way, did you see how a week later, because we spoke about this last week, how a week later Turkey <laughs> Turkey is even more, I don't want to say desperate because I, I can't get into their head, but I mean, Turkey is even more uh, inclined to uh, forge a peaceful relationship with Israel? But at the same time, he announced after the first stories came out, Erdogan said, well, uh, only if they lift the siege in Gaza, which is is not going to happen. The trade between Turkey and and Israel has gone along. Uh, But Turkey faces a lot of internal problems, Erdogan, and he is a... Well, what's the official... Is there an election there coming up? There is, right? Yes, there is, and, and he is concerned about what happens, and therefore he is sort of focused on Israel. In of late, but and is that soon? Like, is that no p- indication? He, what he's driving him on Israel is the hope that he would get a pipeline from the new gas that Israel discovered that would go to Turkey. Ah, and Israel's not ready to make that deal. Well, they're not going to certainly be making the deal with him now right. under these circumstances. And he, he, you know, he keeps reverting back, and whether it's to assuage the domestic public opinion that thinks he's going to make peace with Israel or go back to the status quo with Israel. 
uh, I, I can't say, but because I'm not, I, I don't know what Erdogan thinks. If he, if he does, in fact, uh, what we know is that he's been erratic in his policy and and is almost unpredictable. But that he has cracked down at home, taken away human rights. Look at all the journalists he arrests. Other countries are criticized. Turkey gets away with it. They put the, much of the military in prison, etc. So. It's a uh, Turkey situation is is I think uh, as a rule unpredictable. Mar- if I'm if I'm reading this correctly, March thirtieth is the election. Uh, yes, I think. Um, and why is the Saudi prince in so much trouble for contacting Israelis? I mean, <laughs> we we continue to give the impression here that Saudi Arabia is depending on Israel to stay strong in the Middle East, and 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 that likely the alliance with Israel should become stronger and stronger. Is it that bad? If in fact secretly he contacted Israeli officials. Well, I, I wouldn't say that that is uh, that the stories are necessarily true, uh, and I told you uh, that I think some of the reports of the nature of the contact and communication was exaggerated. Uh, I do think there has been. Uh, I really don't want to go into it, but uh, you know, people get in trouble for other things too, and part of it was alienating uh, Putin. Uh, some things that happened with the Russians and other things, so people may ascribe it to something, but it's speculative. Uh, as to what's really happening there, and nobody really knows. It's still a pretty close society, and you know, there's always jockeying between the princes for succession because the the age of the rulers. Um, so it's not you can't believe for the reports that come out. Forget the um, you know all, all the scandalous stuff that so many of our media outlets here like to focus on. In terms of substance, you, you just mentioned earlier in this conversation, France has a leading role in the EU. Obviously, we're concerned about Israel. Uh, anything special to come out of the French United States meetings this week in the White House? I think it was a rapprochement to use. French term, uh, but <laughs> in Spain we're so multinational. Yeah, very classy, uh, but uh, you know it, it helped smooth over some of the extreme tensions that followed the Snowden releases and the revelation of, of the spying on France. But you have no uh, reason to believe that Israel was a major topic. I do believe that Iran was a major topic. Ah. The statement that came out by the president that'll come down like a ton of bricks on anybody. But at the same time. We're not seeing, we've seen some increased sanctions uh, from the United States, but we see Europeans going by the plane loads. We see the economy of Iran, Iran turning around, the real going up, the, the production of oil crossing some really critical red lines at a time when they're earning nothing. I mean, they're saying they're not going to allow the inspection of the Parchin uh, Facility, which is where we believe their weaponization is taking place. They say at the celebrations of the 35th anniversary of the Iranian Revolution, death to America, death to everybody, you know, Israel. Uh, Israel's a cancer, and the Americans walk out of a conference where they say it. But they're they talking about, and they marched with signs that said death to Wendy Sherman, who's the Iran per, point person in the, in the State Department, and death to Obama and even Kerry. They, they're sending ships to American waters. They launched two ballistic missiles, one with a very long range and able to carry uh, warheads uh, that they, I mean, they at least claim. And But they've demonstrated that they're increasing these capacities. They are in the third round of the centrifuges, which will be 20 times faster wow. than the current. They're, they say they're not going to diminish their stockpiles. They're not going to dismantle one aspect of it under no circumstances, never. And I think that... that um, you know, they, they can always claim that's because the uh, IRGC, the Iran Revolutionary Guard, that the, the extremists and they have to placate them and all that. That, that becomes 
too, too convenient an excuse. What we've seen is that the aggressiveness, uh, more executions, 300 executions since Rouhani took office, just in that period, which is much more than under uh, Ahmadinejad in a similar period. So, you know, the, and they both, they're still continuing to play a destabilizing role all over the Gulf, in Syria, in Lebanon, and we're seeing the Syrian war spill over more and more into the Beirut suburbs and can expect that to heat up some more um, in, in the coming days. So, you know, there is no reason to believe that Iran has changed in any regard. If anything, the need to show them a really tough stand is greater than it ever was. And yet we don't see it. And then you mentioned the legislation and the other things that have been talked about. When Iran shows a TV simulation of bombing Haifa and Tel Aviv and American ships and <clears throat> killing American uh, sailors in a simulation, um, and the, the statements that they're making uh, that they will never reduce their, quote, defensive capabilities, which means their offensive capabilities in, in, uh, in the nuclear realm, then I, I think that, that we can't look to see uh, uh, right now any kind of change that is going to make the talks more productive. And they're talking not a year, a six-month framework, but the administration and others are talking about a year framework. I'm so glad you said it like that because you've told us this so many times, and unfortunately only a small percentage of people like to listen to it. When they tell you something, believe them. As simple as that. Believe what they're telling you because uh, because they mean it. They mean it, and everything they're saying, as you just described, everything they're saying, they want to see come to reality. And uh, maybe one day uh, some of the uh, leaders around the world will start to believe it, like a small percentage of this audience I think already does, maybe maybe bigger than small. What happened with the PA? What happened with this, uh, this hospital episode that, they would only, that Israel would not treat people who came in with credentials on State of Palestine stationery or letterhead, but instead it had to say Palestinian Authority. What, what are they trying to do there uh, to, to incorporate a brand-new state that doesn't exist yet? Exactly, and they do all these unilateral measures, which they know provoke the Israelis, and they know, in fact, undermine the prospect of any kind of negotiations, and it shows that they don't want to negotiate. They want to dictate the terms, and the other things I cited for you would, would underscore that uh, as well. That the the um, when they come and they and they, and an Israeli institution recognizes it, if they accept it, then it's recognition then right. of the legitimacy of the document. It is not legitimate. They have they're not a state. They're not, they have to negotiate with Israel for, to establish whatever uh, the outcome of the negotiations will yield them. But it's an affront on one hand, and it's it's meant to be uh, to be uh, inciting insightful to Israel as all their incitement that continues unabated in all their media, honoring and continuing to pay tribute to terrorists and murderers, uh, that Israel's right not to accept it. Unbelievable. Um, the, uh, the uh, where was I going? <laughs> Give me a second. I lost my train of thought here for a moment. Um, yeah, I don't remember in the... In the you know the people who like especially over the weekend when there's more free time to talk about the situation in the Middle East, I don't remember the negotiator being as hot a topic as Kerry is. In other words, I remember you know there's always been shuttle diplomacy and there's always been concern about who's doing it and the type of negotiations that are going on between Israel and the PA. But it seems like Kerry is always in the headlines now, and I just don't know where this is going. And those who follow the news. Would you know? Would love to are analyzing every single week where this is going, 
Is there any, I asked, I've asked you this before in the last few weeks. Is there any real progress between Israeli administration and the PA when it comes to the Kerry peace talks? Look, I think it, the, the, the question you're asking about it being personalized, um, is, is a very interesting one. There's an article by his brother, Cam Kerry, who is Jewish, who's converted to Judaism and refers to their grandfather, whose name was Cohn, and the reason for his conversion, which is, was very interesting, I thought. Uh, I think it's a mistake to personalize it. I think that some of the comments that have been made were really unfortunate. Uh, they go to an extreme. Uh, I think that Kerry has gone out of his way to work with the prime minister. Prime minister has said it. He talks to them regularly. It doesn't mean he likes what all the things they're doing. And you, you, we know that you can't impose a piece. It can't force it. You can't have the, you know, uh, uh, the pressure always being one-sided as the impression that is created. Yeah. Uh, by the statements, by the some of the actions, is that it's always Israel that gets pressure. Palestinians don't comply, don't do anything. I cited earlier some of the, the demands they're making, the statements they issue, and yet nobody holds them to account. You don't hear Europeans yelling at them. You don't hear threats of boycotts against them for the failure of the talks, uh, but only against uh, against Israel. And because the Secretary of State has made it a personal campaign by visiting there 13 times, by being pressuring all the time on this, I do think that that uh, is a significant factor right. in in uh, in making it uh, the Kerry mission, uh, not even the Obama mission, but the Kerry mission. Uh, if if it goes somewhere, I think it'll become the Obama mission too. I mean, do you know that he could turn to the Prime Minister of Israel one day and say, "I am so all into this process that I need you to compromise on something, so I could say, so we could at least bring some type of result to all of this." That that could happen. Something Anything not- can happen, but they know that you're not going to force it. Congress, I think, will stand up to it. I don't think that that's the intent right now. Uh, I think that, that he has taken a different approach than the president took in his first term in the first round of, of Middle East talks. Uh, so uh, I, I don't think that is the case. All right, Malcolm Honline is in Spain. Uh, Malcolm, in conclusion, Zarzuela Palace, one of those amazing ones or uh, middle of the road when it comes to ostentation? It, it is not ostentatious, uh, and the king didn't have a big throne, a small throne, a throne Allah, and but he, he devoted a lot of time. He was very friendly, and he, in fact, remembered that I met him in 1992 when he made the historic speech at the synagogue wow. here in in uh, Toledo. Uh, but there is a lot of pomp and circumstance and rules, but he turned out to be very informal, good sense of humor, spent a lot of time talking and raised went beyond what uh, the protocol had dictated would be the order. and uh, In the photo in front of me, there's no crown on his head as you shake his hand. Right. I told him the meeting was the crowning moment of our trip. There you go. <laughs> which he liked, and I gave him a Koshal Aliyah, reminding him of the common heritage, but what Koshal represents and when we use it. So I think that, uh, you know, the building ties, trying to move these countries getting them to understand the nature of the concerns. It's an educational opportunity for us, for them, and for us, but for us to explain to them the issues in, in informal ways and that citizens and not with the overlay of governments. And I have to say that I think all of us go away from this thinking this is extremely worthwhile. Well, there you go. Uh, uh, I, what would they the s- weather is beautiful. <laughs> Thanks. That, that, <laughs> that, that helps our situation a lot. A lot. Uh, what do they say on a Friday there? Uh, Shabbat Shalom, is that what they say? Is that what That's they- close to it. 
That's the way they do it in Spanish, I guess. Uh, we will speak. Uh, what, next week, you're U.S., Israel? Or Israel. Sp- you're in Israel next week. All right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Live from Israel next week. I thank Malcolm Holmline live in Spain and wish him a Shabbat Shalom. Uh, he is the executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Next week from Israel, the following week, is our fundraiser. If Malcolm's in the U.S., we'll ask him to come in two Fridays from now. We'll get his schedule and to figure it all out uh, here at JM and the AM.